All right, we're going to do our very best today to make this entertaining. It's another doozy. It's it's another depressing one, but it's depressing to a group I belong to, so maybe I'll be able to make some jokes along the way. And I have my friend and fellow Jew here, Zoe. We went to Hebrew school together and high school together. Say hello. Hi, Eli. Thank you guys for having me on your podcast. You're very welcome. You're very welcome, Zoe. This episode is, is going to be, you know, it's going to be spicy in a sense. You know, it's, it's going to be some pretty hard topics to deal with in a sense. It's it's probably going to upset like 80% of the people I know. And we'll see if we're still around after this. So it's, I think everyone knows when they think of anti-Semitism, and they think of Jew hatred and stuff. People think, you know, they think of the KKK. They think of the Nazis. They think of these far-right, violent mm. groups. And yeah, those are scary. Like, those, I'm, those, are, those are bad. So today, we're going to talk about anti-Semitism in the left wing of politics. To me, personally, I find that even scarier because I am left-wing myself, and because we all kind of know what right-wing anti-Semitism looks like, it's easier to spot out, it's easier to call out. Left-wing anti-Semitism is completely different, and every time someone calls it out, it's not uncommon for people to just go like, you're just silencing them, and stuff like that. It's very, very difficult to call this stuff out, so that's why we're doing this. Like, also, we're doing we're doing this out of love, because, you know, I, you know, I love the left-wing, so like, I think for that to move forward, you have to address the darker, more, I think, historically, one of the biggest dark spots in the movement. That's kind of why it's so difficult for me to call it out. Like the left wing politically, that's my political home. I I would never call myself, I'm not a right wing person. I'm very much a left wing person. And I really respect a lot of the people we'll be talking about today. But that does not mean that there aren't issues to deal with. So yeah, this is us, you know, kill your idols, right? And it hurts more when it's coming from from your party and your home and your people. And so I feel like more of a need to uh, hold them to a higher standard because I do think I hold the left to a higher standard than the yeah. right uh, being on the left. I totally agree. Like uh, the, the left wing has always seen itself as the place in politics for oppressed peoples and for, you know, social justice and stuff. So when you see this form of racism, it's kind of disturbing. People on the left, I think rightly in a lot of ways, see themselves as, you know, the good guys. You know, they're on the right side side of history. But that doesn't mean that you can also be wrong. People have to have a lot of humility. People should never get to the point where they're just like, I'm right, you're wrong. Yeah, what hurts me the most is just the absolute denial of the existence of left-wing anti-Semitism. That right-wing anti-Semitism is really obvious. They're proud of it, uh, and we can all point to it and um, know what's going on. But when it comes to the left wing, uh, I have people that, you know, you need to be able to identify left wing anti-Semitism. It comes with tropes. It tends to be more inconspicuous. And you need to know a bit about Jewish history. Uh, And if you don't, then you can look at something very anti-Semitic and not even see the anti-Semitism. Just the denial of anti-Semitism on the left as an issue worth engaging with uh, has has hurt the most. And we should probably say at the head, I am not Jewish. That puts me in a different situation here. For me, it's definitely been that. It's like what you were saying, Eli, where it's like you have this crisis because you see, you know, your heroes in a sense, and you realize that, oh no, 
there's a very large part of this that is really, really wrong. And that can be quite a difficult thing to deal with, which is why I understand why so many people in these movements, I guess, resist it. Because I guess it's like cognitive dissonance where they can't cope with the idea that maybe I'm being a bit racist. So then they just deny it outright. It's I, And again, just to stress it one more time, we are doing this. We are calling this stuff out to try and make left-wing politics even better than they are today. Because there's always room for improvement in things. There's always something wrong somewhere. And let's face it, anti-Semitism isn't a new thing. It's been in every movement of all time. Like, of course, there's shame in having it. But don't think that just because we're calling out the left wing right now, that it's only in the left wing. It's everywhere. But again, like Zoe said, we have higher standards for the left wing. And that's why we're calling this out right now. Also, just for some context, Zoe and I, uh, this is a very, very, very personal issue to us. We have spent many a night calling or the in the wee hours of the morning, ranting and venting about how we've been made to feel, mostly because of left-wing people we care about. We see them post things online that are demonizing Jews or generalizing or treating Jews as a monolith. There's so many different ways it can form, and we'll get to that, but just know that like this, if if we say something that maybe upsets you a bit, know that this entire situation upsets us. So please bear with us. We're, we're trying to stay as academic and as detached from this as possible while discussing it, but it is super, super personal. And it's coming from the institutions we belong to, the politicians we vote for, uh, the friends we've known for years. So it, it is a little hard to get into because um, it's so personal, as well as being so political. I will say, you know, I credit you, Eli. I'll be honest, I barely have had any interaction with Jewish people in most of my upbringing. So like, it's very important to, you know, listen to Jewish voices, obviously. I think that's something that the left could definitely do more. Isaac has still never had a real bagel. <laughs> How are you even qualified to be on this podcast? <laughs> I have a cupboard full of two packs of bagels, although they're... Yeah, but they're like grocery store bagels. Pathetic. <laughs> They have a picture of the Empire State Building as their logo. It's a lie. <laughs> yeah. So there are so many people, so many politicians, so many celebrities, so many public figures that we absolutely love that keep going to the anti-Semitism train and it hurts our feelings. So how, how did, did we fuck, fuck this up? No, please take two. <laughs> Absolutely not. Stick with that one. I like it. I like that one. No, no, no. We're not doing it again. How did we fuck this up? How did we fuck this up? How did we fuck this up? All right. Now, what you, the audience, should keep in mind as we go through all of this stuff, you should have these things in your mind as like a little checklist, right? To to see all the little common themes that, that, that will pop up. There are the three Ds that many Jews will be familiar with that are used to distinguish between criticism of Israel and anti-Semitic stuff that is using Israel as like a jumping off point. So these three Ds are delegitimization of Israel as a state, the demonization of Israel, 
and double standards held to Israel that no other state are being held to. These 3Ds were created to be able to tell a difference, to be able to draw a line between criticizing Israel, which is very important, obviously, just as many, many states in the world, terrible things have been done. And and those things should be talked about, and they should be rectified. But it's no secret that anti-Semites love to focus on Israel as well. So we need to have a line that, that uh, separates it. Another thing to keep in mind, look for Holocaust belittlement or denial. And that can range from saying the Holocaust never happened to, well, the Holocaust happened, but... Jews did this to deserve it, or or even that like Zionists worked with Hitler or something like that. It comes in a lot of different forms, but keep an eye out for that. Lastly, generalizations of Jewish people as a whole. Uh, Jews love to argue. Jews don't agree on everything. And yeah, those are generalizations, but you know what? <laughs> get, get out of here. Jews do love the debate. Another thing to keep in mind, this is going to be pretty interwined with the history of anti-Zionism. Anti-Zionism is basically what it sounds like, just against Zionism. That can mean a lot of different things, and it is it comes in a lot of different forms. Anti-Zionism is really big historically in three places. Radicalized Islamic groups of thought, Soviet-inspired left-wing groups of thought, and white supremacist groups of thought. Those are the three big anti-Zionist areas. Can I cut in right here Please. and define Zionism real quick? Because I think that's a hotly debated topic as well. Sure. Go for it. And again, this is something that not everybody agrees on one thing. Like everybody has different definitions. Right. So my definition, and I think uh, the popular one in Zionist communities, uh, would be that Zionism is the self-determination of Jews in their ancestral homeland. So that's going back to the days of Jews in Judea, the, the return of Jews to Israel as almost an indigenous rights land back movement in its own way. And of course... I'm sure if you're listening to this, you have heard other people saying Zionism is something else. So a lot of people, nobody agrees. The Jews don't agree on what it is, and the non-Jews don't agree on what it is, because it's a really vague thing, and it can come in a lot of different forms. But the general thing that connects it is pretty much what Zoe said, is, is that it's Jews going back to the Levant to live where they are originally from. I think that's one of the biggest like red flags in like left-wing spaces is when you hear someone be like, Zionism is, and then it's like, oh, what's going to come? It could be anything. <laughs> yeah, it's just a bunch of buzzwords afterwards. <laughs> okay. So the general vibe you're going to see in this USSR and this far left, like socialist communist type space is you're going to see the trope that Jews are capitalist, money hungry colonists, like fucking over people for their own benefit. That's me. That's yeah. <laughs> That's the big trope on the left, right? Mm. Then when that is challenged, historically, those people challenging that trope have been accused of silencing these valid critics with false accusations of anti-Semitism and stuff like that. It's basically, they've been accused of weaponizing anti-Semitism to silence people. David Hirsch actually gave that a name. It's called the Livingston Formulation. If you want to read more about that, I'd look into the research of David Hirsch. This, this has roots in the area where modern day left-wing politics like really got their, you know, their oomph, got their start. Germany and Russia, I mean, I think that's safe to say is like, that's kind of the area where a lot of socialist thoughts came from. They they were in a lot of other places too. But in those lands, those lands historically have been undeniably anti-Semitic for so, so long. 
So I'm going to read a Karl Marx quote. At this time in history, there was an issue going around Europe, and it was called the Jewish question. And most people, when they hear that, they'll think of Nazis, and they'll think of the final solution and the Holocaust. But the Jewish question was around for so much longer than just that. And it wasn't just right-wing people asking it either. There were Jews asking that question. Um, you could say that Zionism is kind of an answer to the Jewish question. It, there were left-wing people asking the question. The question was, basically, what are we going to do with the Jews? <laughs> There are all these Jews and they're shuffling, they're being shuffled around from country to country. Clearly, they're not happy. They're not having a good time. Yeah, I was just going to say the same way Nazism was a uh, response to the Jewish question, uh, so was Zionism. This is a quote from Marx's paper on the Jewish question, which was written in 1843. This might be painful for a lot of left-wing people to hear. Oh, it's spicy. <laughs> Hot take from Marx here. So this is Marx's words. Let us consider the actual worldly Jew, not the Sabbath Jew, as Bauer does, but the everyday Jew. Let us not look for the secret of the Jew in his religion, but let us look for the secret of his religion in the real Jew. What is the secular basis of Judaism? Practical need? Self-interest? What is the worldly religion of the Jew? Huckstering? What is his worldly god? Money? Money is the jealous God of Israel, in face of which no other God may exist. Money degrades all the gods of man and turns them into commodities. The bill of exchange is the real God of the Jew. His God is only an illusory bill of exchange. The chimerical nationality of the Jew is the nationality of the merchant, of the man of money in general. The Jew has emancipated himself in a Jewish manner not only because he has acquired financial power, but also because through him and also apart from him, money has become a world power and the practical Jewish spirit has become the practical spirit of the Christian nations. The Jews have emancipated themselves insofar as the Christians have become Jews. In the final analysis, the emancipation of the Jews is the emancipation of mankind from Judaism. Wow. He's so progressive. I gotta say, he's not super original. Like, if you right. ever read The Merchant of Venice uh, <laughs> with the Shylock character, uh, these anti-Semitic tropes has been around for a while. Obviously, you know, Marx had some pretty, like, incredible mm -hmm. analyses of capitalism and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, there's nothing there. That's hatred. I mean, the next line might as well be, Jews did 9-11. <laughs> So the first Zionist Congress actually takes place in 1897 in response to the Jewish question. And six years later, a article is published called The Protocols of the Elder of Zion, which is an addendum to The Great and the Small, The Coming of the Antichrist and the Rules of Satan on Earth in a Russian newspaper. Uh, and it takes a lot of those themes Marx is playing with and it, and it gives them uh, validity. So it legitimizes these age-old anti-Semitic tropes of Jews being power-hungry, ruling the world, controlling the economy and the media, and of course, inciting all kinds of chaos and religious conflict. 
And this is exported to Britain and the Arab world. And Hitler even ends up quoting from it. But it's really legitimate. Like it's quoted from Gaddafi, Nasser, Anwar Sadat, um, and even in Hamas's charter, they're quoting the Protocols of the Elder of Zion, which is just this anti-Jewish propaganda. Like one of my favorite quotes that I came across was, anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools. In the sense that, obviously around this time, Marx, that was the growth of socialism, which really is basically just, there's a small elite group of rich people controlling everything, which at the time was obviously true in the sense that rich people were gaining large Mm -hmm. amounts of money. And it doesn't take much to replace that group with an ethnic group, a very convenient ethnic group that were always being accused of that anyway. To me, it's almost not surprising that it ended up going that way because there was already this character, you know, created in the minds of the population that they could just insert whenever they needed it to be there. So in the beginning of the USSR, they actually were supposedly very, very dedicated to fighting anti-Semitism because they saw it as like a bourgeois way of people up top distracting from the actual issue of them being in charge by saying, oh, no, no, the Jews are doing it. And they would manipulate the poor masses to just blame the Jews. And then the actual rich people in charge would get off scot-free. So in the beginning, the USSR was like super dedicated to going like, that's the old way. We aren't like this. I was just going to say, it's funny you bring up imperialism because, you know, after after Lenin dies and Stalin takes over, you know, that uh, that exact logic is flipped on its head uh, and suddenly Jews are Aiding American imperialism. Yeah, so I'll 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 get to Stalin, but that's really when the shit starts going down. This is in Lenin's time. He wasn't great, um, but he was. A, it's kind of hard to pin Lenin down when it comes to anti-Semitism. Like here are two quotes that are five years apart. This is Lenin in 1914. No nationality in Russia is as oppressed and persecuted as the Jews. He definitely went out of his way to like really acknowledge that Jews were pretty much the most oppressed group of people in the continent. But then in 1919, he said, Jews and city dwellers on the Ukraine must be taken by hedgehog skin gauntlets sent to fight on front lines and should never be allowed on any administrative positions. So (laughs) it's kind of a mix. Wow. All of us change our minds. (laughs) But he would still keep giving speeches about how anti-Semitism was wrong and stuff. So I don't think he saw, I don't think he saw himself as an anti-Semite. That connects to a lot of contemporary (laughs) things as well. Yeah. There's always this kind of like double-sided thing that seems like it would contradict itself, but it doesn't. That's kind of where anti-Semitism thrives. Like that moral superiority where they're like, well, we're the good guys, you know? Yeah. We're the good guys. (laughs) So as Zoe was saying, when Stalin came to power, shit started changing. Stalin's political rival was Leon Trotsky. He was a socialist Jew. To combat Trotsky and his supporters, Stalin started reverting back to anti-Semitic accusations and insults and stereotypes and conspiracy theories and all that. He started using the word cosmopolitan and Zionist and individuals devoid of nation or tribe as a way to describe Jews because it wasn't hip to say that you hate Jews because the Nazis just did that and they hate the Nazis. They really, really didn't want to be like the Nazis, but they loved hating Jews. So what a pickle. Oh, it's oh, it was difficult. It was a moral uh, dilemma. I just saw 
this quote that they used to say, a Jew is a Trotskyist, a Trotskyist is a Jew. Yes. They even like linked it directly to the ideology. Um, and it's it's important to say that like Jews were very, very committed to socialism in, in this area of the world. So Stalin kind of drew a line then going like, well, there are Jews and there are socialists. And this is kind of where the divide starts really happening. He accused Jews of being basically like America capitalist simps and imperialists and stuff like that. You know, all these buzzwords. He didn't say simp. <laughs> let's say he did. Yeah, let's say he <laughs> So he denied immigration rights to Jews. They denied that Jewish victims of the Holocaust lived in Soviet lands. Like when the Nazis took over Soviet lands and, you know, sent Soviet Jews to concentration camps. They also removed all these Jews from academia. But the big thing is the doctor's plot. And also, just for more context, like my family comes from, we, we left Russia um, or Ukraine, whatever it was at the time. We left there around the 1880s and we came to New York. So this is my family. These are my people. The doctor's plot. Zoe, do you, do you have some stuff you want to say on that? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it happened from 1951 to 1953. And it was this mass removal of Jews from academia and science. And what it really culminated in was not just that they got fired, but that they were detained, tortured, and murdered. And while it got cut short because, you know, Stalin had an untimely death, there were larger plans for mass-scale deportations, and they were splitting Jews into pure bloods and half bloods and you know jk rowling would pick up that terminology <laughs> later um but this was supposed to save the soviet russia from the jews evil rootless cosmopolitan capitalist communist jews uh so it all started with the deaths of two russian dudes andrei zadanov to be fair, there was a misdiagnosis on part of his doctor who happened to be Jewish. Kill him! And then <laughs> Alexander Sherbakov, uh, who died of heart failure. Totally not the doctor's fault. <laughs> he died of heart failure. Are you telling me a Jewish doctor let someone die? <laughs> On purpose. Doctors never let anyone die in the 1800s. This is all just this is all just a Zionist conspiracy. Um, <laughs> so both were alleged to have been killed by their Jewish doctor, and the Jewish doctor's name Yaakov Ettinger. So basically, the Soviet Union hopped on this, and they were like, "Oh yeah, there's a Zionist conspiracy," and they are not only existing, they are trying to kill every Russian person in charge. Again, just like in the Dreyfus affair and the. Leo Frank thing, very little evidence <laughs> for this claim. And go back to that episode. <laughs> yeah. If you want to know more about that. Watch it as, you know, listen a second time. So what they started doing was they started rounding up all these Jewish doctors. All the Jewish doctors, or a lot of them, were rounded up as possibly being tangled up in this secret Zionist conspiracy to kill the Russian government. And they were either killed, tortured, interrogated, sent to Siberia, you know, all the whatever they wanted to do. They did all these bad things to them. So all these doctors just disappeared. And ironically, then Stalin got sick and there were barely any doctors. Um beautiful irony. <laughs> 
there were barely any doctors in the country at the time. So that's that's the doctor's plot. It, and, and it was all done in the name of anti-Zionism. At least we got a funny film out of it. Yes. Oh, oh Death of Stalin is so good. I love that movie. <laughs> but I think that people don't realize that anti-Zionism, just like Zionism, has a long, complicated history very bad history that's related to it and some good history related to it. But this is definitely a dark spot in the history of anti-Zionism that people just gloss over. And I think two people who are descendants of especially Jews that escaped the Soviet Union, this term, this hatred of all Zionists really does kind of scare us because <laughs> it it reminds us of the many times that the word Zionist has been used just to mean Jew. Yeah, like I understand the instinct to romanticize socialism and past socialist governments. You know, in a contemporary world, anti-Zionist encompasses uh, the David Dukes and the Proud Boys. So it's not an inherently leftist position. And to erase the history of it, to romanticize socialism is going to really isolate some some Jewish people. Just like how with democracy, that has ended in some terrible things as well. Um, Every ideology is going to have some flaws. And to pretend like one has no flaws is just dumb. Yeah, like there's no perfect form of any ideology, despite what all of the different theorists of all different types of, I don't know, communism or socialism say. It's just not possible for there to be a perfect form. Although, on the other hand, there are obviously certain things that did lead to more bad Mm. things. But uh, of course, especially with an ideology based on the power of the people when the people are anti-Semitic. Yeah. (laughs) Like, what do you think is going to (laughs) happen? What, like, uh, it's like how uh, today with, like, we're not all equal until black trans women are equal. It's not a truly equal society until we deal with all of these racist and and homophobic and sexist biases that people have. Democracy is like a real double-edged sword. However, I would always say no matter what, it's still the best bet. Completely agree. Like achieving the most logical and you know good morally sound thing. It's just that that means you have to be really aware of you know what can naturally happen when you know, society starts to go down certain trends. And, you know, you can see that throughout history. It's just you got to keep an eye out for this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Just go keep a check. Even in the language of, you know, diversity, inclusion, and social justice, uh, the Jews these days have been marked too powerful, too wealthy, too privileged, too white to be included. Um, And looking back at this Soviet history, that sounds just a little bit too familiar. I think I was actually saying this to you, Eli, where it was like, in the left, there's obviously, which is understandable because that's the basis of socialist ideas, that there's a richer elite that are kind of the enemy, there understandably then starts to be a lot of anger that is generated at the rich, real anger that could actually boil over like it has historically in like the French Revolution to violence. But then the danger of that is, is that same hatred can then manifest into other hatreds of already present hatreds that people have, like obviously in France, which is a historically anti-Semitic country anyway. They can as easily chop off the heads of, you know, their kings and queens as they will do killing and framing Jewish people.
as the resident British guy here, I thought it might be good to get the British perspective on anti-Semitism on the left wing. And obviously that starts with the Labour Party. And now I know this is a very topical and quite controversial matter at the moment <laughs> because of the recent claims of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn. Now, before I get into all this, I should say at the head that I'm a lifelong Labour voter. Everyone in my family has voted Labour. I would call myself a democratic socialist. Everything I'm going to say comes from a place of love. I think the issue has become very polarised in the UK. You can see that with the hashtag I stand with Corbyn movement, where it's either you're with or against a certain group, and either someone is a complete anti-Semite or someone is completely innocent of any wrongdoing. And in reality, things are far more nuanced than that, and that's what I wanted to get into. So I thought it would be worth going through the history of the left wing in the UK, and in particular, the history of the Labour Party. So the Labour Party was founded in 1900, and that was born out of like the Labour movement, you know, socialism. Mm -hmm. It's the exact same thing. It's founded on socialist ideas that goes back to Marx, like we talked about. Now, at the time, this was at the peak of intellectual anti-Semitism anyway, like in the 1800s. Late 1800s going into the 20th century was just like everyone hated Jews, basically, anyway. <laughs> so it's like, it's no surprise that they did at this point. Basically, one of the first big incidents that Labour was part of, this is in, I think, like 1918, or just before, was the Second Boer War. So this was in South Africa. And Labour opposed the war anyway, because, you know, Labour was, you know, from the beginning, very sort of pacifist and all that kind of stuff. It's unsurprising. However, their reasoning was that the war was being financed by Jewish financiers. Now, this obviously links <laughs> <That's me. incredibly laughs> an incredibly old Jewish conspiracy. And they claimed that a secretive imperialist Jewish cabal was controlling the British government, pushing for the war for their own ends. Now, you can hear this kind of conspiracy is everywhere at the time. Anti-Semitism doesn't exist on the left. <laughs> but around this time as well, though, there was like a lot more Jewish immigration into Britain. And one of the effects of this is that most of the Jews that came to Britain joined the Labour Party because they saw that as their natural home because most Jews at the time were much more receptive to socialism and that kind of stuff. As a result, going into sort of like the 40s, 30s, 50s, the Labour Party actually was like a lot more accepting of Jews to the point that, obviously we know, the Labour Party accepted the Balfour Declaration, even though before then they saw it as imperialist and were completely like, no, we're not going to do that. Although they agreed to it so long as it wasn't, I think they wanted it to be a um, two-state thing. So up until the 60s and 70s, the Labour Party supported Israel, that kind of stuff. And it's the 60s and 70s that it really changes. This happened in America as well. Liberal, you know, the sexual revolution, the Vietnam War, all that kind of stuff. There was like a kind of rise of political activism. And this is when the pro-Palestinian movement began. And then at the same time, this kind of coincided with Israel as a government changing in a lot of ways as well. So then by the 80s, the Labour Party turned sharply against Israel. Because being pro-Palestinian isn't necessarily like anti-Jewish. This is from a book that referenced it, The British Left and Zionism, 
the other thing this coincided with was the occupation of the West Bank. So obviously then there was like a, you know, a focal point for people to build the activism around. So then this kind of becomes the defining feature of the pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel positions. Because by this point, the Labour Party was much more, at the very least, anti-Israel at the time. British Jews ended up overwhelmingly voting for Margaret Thatcher. And this trend would continue until Tony Blair. That's not to say, obviously, and obviously this is what people on the left always say, where they're like, yeah, but, you know, the Conservatives hate Jews as well, blah, 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 which is obviously true. They've got like an issue of <laughs> anti-Semitism as well. Oh yeah, you know they're going to say that they support Israel anyway because they don't. I think it's kind of like they don't really have a dog in the race. I'm not saying that Margaret yeah. Thatcher is an anti-Semite, <laughs> but I just think she doesn't really care. Basically, it's like how Trump is like, you know, my daughter mm. married a Jewish dude and I support Israel. So like, what else do you want from me? And then he's yeah. like. Jews are exactly, always in yeah. it for themselves. And you see, he can say whatever he wants. Yeah, because- it is very similar to Trump in a way, because obviously, you know, I would definitely say Trump is anti-Semitic. Yeah, I would say, I would say so. <laughs> but then the things he actually says in terms of, you know, then he can kind of like say, well, I support Israel, so I'm not. So because of this, obviously, you know, Labour started to lose a lot of the support of the Jewish community. Now, this is when you get all these conspiracies cropping up, and this is in the 2000s, and this is very much to do with America as well, of these concerns over, in quotes, the Jewish lobby, which you hear about all the time, which is that that Israel controls America and the UK. Yeah, that's the, um, oh, what's it called? It's called the uh, Zionist Occupied Government. Yeah. The Zog theory. Zog! And, like, here's the thing I think people often don't realize. They're obviously saying it because they're like, Oh, but, you know, like the ambassador for Israel or whatever was seen in the White House. And it's like, so? (laughs) That's politics. That's how it works. (laughs) Obviously, if a country has like, you know, a relation with another country, there's going to be political, you know, to and fro. That's how it works. Government officials in my country? (laughs) (laughs) Imagine how many like Chinese ambassadors and people like that there are. That's just how politics works. So I've never understood. But anyway. So then from 2000 onward, I think this is when in the UK you see the largest rise in anti-Semitism. And there's, you know, loads of incidents of Labour MPs coming out of crazy, suggesting that, you know, the Holocaust didn't happen. Reasonable arguments. And treating Israeli-Palestinian conflict as if it's a football game where you should be pro one side, anti the other, and then there's, you know, no critical thinking in between. Yeah. Just as a quick aside, like, that is, it is so fucking annoying how like it's almost detached completely from the actual conflict like you see it on uh college campuses over here you see that there are people that are like i'm pro palestine well i'm pro israel and then they're neither are jewish or palestinian and like they're yeah. also just like they don't know much about the issue and like the republicans will use it as they'll go like well we want the jewish vote so now we're going to be pro israel or like yeah it's, it's talking down isn't it and you're pledging loyalty it's super condescending so here's like a quote, Labour MP Martin Linton, and this is in 2010, in reference to the so-called Israel lobby, said, there are long tentacles of Israel in this oh country God. who are funding election campaigns and putting money into the British political system for their own ends. Very, you can tell, you know, coded language. We've got another, this is in 2015. 
This is um, MP Gerald Kaufman said, Jewish money, Jewish donations, support from the Jewish Chronicle has led to a big group of conservatives, MPs who are pro-Israel and will do whatever the Israeli government wants. Bum, bum, and there's people like Ken Livingston, yeah, you know, um, mayor of London for a very, very long time. Didn't he say like Hitler was a Zionist or something? He, Crazy. Yeah, he... <laughs> We'll play a clip of that. I've been in the Labour Party for 47 years. I've never heard anyone say anything anti-Semitic. She talked about relocating Israel to America. She talked about what Hitler did being legal. And she talked about the Jews rallying. And she used the word Jews, not Israelis or Israel. You didn't find that to be anti-Semitic? Oh, it's completely over the top. It's not anti-Semitic. I mean, let's remember when Hitler won his election in 1932, his policy then was that Jews should be moved to Israel. He was supporting um, Zionism. And his boy went mad and ended up killing six million Jews. And his big move is uh, anytime anybody accuses him of anti-Semitism is he not only assumes that somebody's doing that with bad intentions, mm. that you're using the accusation of anti-Semitism to shut down some kind of discussion, but also that, that you yourself are some kind of, of racist or political player by even using the term anti-Semitism, mm. uh, that it's pretty much just the Nazis and the KKK. Um, and to talk about it in terms of, you know, British policy and uh, British discussion is is just trying to quell a conversation. He yeah. is a straight, white, leftist male, and he is being oppressed by the Jews. Aren't we all? I, and I think that's the thing is that, you know, this is the left wing tradition of, you know, there's this elite. And if you're seen as part of that, then you don't have a say. You know, you're the enemy in a sense. And if the enemy is made to be the Jews, then ignore them, which is exactly what It's happens. just black and white thinking. Mm. One interesting thing that I actually find this kind of crazy, you know, anti-Semitism really rises from like the 2000s. And in 2010, Ed Miliband becomes the first Jewish labor leader. Wait, when was this? 2010. Oh, so, so pretty recently. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And it was the 2015 election that he lost. When I was reading this, like, it made me feel like I was going crazy because of it feels like it was like a million years ago. So by that point, though, Labour wasn't popular with Jews anyway. At that time, so this is 2010, the support in the Labour Party from Jews was about 15% against 64% with Conservatives. Ed Miliband, like, I think he wasn't popular anyway because he described the 2014 incursion into Gaza as wrong and unjustifiable. I guess he's allowed to say that. The point is, is that by this point anyway, the Labour Party wasn't. It had already lost the Jewish vote anyway, and that's even before Jeremy Corbyn comes up. Okay, right, so I've got some interesting statistics here. Right, so this is obviously important to mention. This, So this is like from YouGov and the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism group. This is from 2015, 16, and 17. So this is around the time that Corbyn would have taken power. The survey found that supporters of the Labour Party were less likely to hold anti-Semitic views than the Conservative Party, and that isn't surprising. Yeah. You know, right-wing anti-Semitism that makes sense to me. higher. But... If you look at the um, statistics for specifically Labour members, 49% of Labour members felt that the party did not have a problem with anti-Semitism at all. And 80% 
of Labour members believed that the charges of anti-Semitism were being deliberately exaggerated to undermine the Labour leader. This speaks to something else going on here, which is the absolute refusal to listen to Jews. The mm. reason these statistics exist is because uh, the Jews in Britain at the time were like, hey, what the fuck? Why is everybody being so anti-Semitic? <laughs> in 2017, a poll was commissioned by the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism of British Jews and 87% of them felt that the Labour Party was too tolerant of anti-Semitism. So that flies in the face of what Labour members think, obviously. I feel like, to me, that just, like, on its own gets rid of any argument against, right? like, any argument of, like, there's no anti-Semitism problem. Like, if 87% of Jews think that there's an anti-Semitism problem, like, who are non-Jews to be able to say that there isn't? <laughs> so let's get to the, you know... The juicy stuff. So Jeremy Corbyn, he takes power. So obviously Jeremy Corbyn is a lifelong supporter of, you know, pro-Palestinian stuff, left-wing activist. So there are some things that he has said and done that are very strange, like probably one of the most famous ones, and we'll play a clip of that now. Say thank you everyone for being here tonight and say that tomorrow evening it will be my pleasure and my honour to host an event in Parliament where our friends from Hezbollah will be speaking. I'd also invited um, friends from Hamas to come and speak as well. Unfortunately, the Israelis would not allow them to travel here, so it's going to... He referred to his friends in Hamas. Now, he later said that he disagrees with the views of the group. I don't know how you can call someone your friends whilst <laughs> disagreeing with their views, but he was at this um, organization called Dare Yassin Remembered, and this was commemorating the massacre of 100 Palestinian villages, which, you know, on its own, that's a good yeah. thing. Now, this was founded by a Holocaust denier called Paul Eisen. Now, up to 2013, Jeremy Corbyn attended two or three of the group's events, and Corbyn said it took place before he knew about Eisen's views, that like nothing had come out about Eisen before he would have known. However, it was reported that Eisen's views were known in 2005, and actually on his website, he had a post entitled, My Life as a Holocaust Denier. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine not reading the man's blog. <laughs> so, I like that. So, like, it's perfectly possible, but you'd be suspending a lot of doubt that Jeremy Corbyn just somehow just had no idea, and he was just like, mm, "This guy's an interesting fella. He seems a bit off." Also, like, this is this is not even close to being the only time that you'd have to give him mm. benefit of the doubt. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, outside of Jeremy Corbyn, um, the Labour MP Diane Abbott defended Corbyn later on by calling critics of him Westminster elites. And she also said the reason why this was is because that the elites were afraid of Corbyn's anti-austerity agenda. And that, to me, sounds like she's equating Jews with the rich and the elite. Nobody's ever done that before. It's 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 weird because I genuinely I actually really do genuinely believe that Jeremy Corbyn and and all of these people in the Labour Party do not see themselves as anti-Semites. Yeah. I don't think they see themselves as anti-Semitic. And also like with this event about like commemorating the terrible awful things that have happened to Palestinians, the fact that this fucking Holocaust denier is involved, it goes back to like our first episode when we talked about misinformation and how they mm. like to mix bad information with good information and it makes it harder to call out that bad information because you don't want to call everything out. Those Palestinian villages that were destroyed and those those people that lost their lives should 100,000% be recognized and, and yeah. be honored. 
course. It's sad that anti-Semites have to jump onto it and attach themselves onto it to try and manipulate their cause to fit their own. But also, if I was accused of being a homophobe 45 times a day, at one point, I would look at myself in the mirror and ask if I was a homophobe. But (laughs) they just refuse to get past that stage of being Mm. offended. Um, And they don't do any of that work of looking inside themselves and, you know, seeing if any of their views are problematic. Yeah, they react like it's just like they're getting insulted. It's like, it's like they react like somebody's calling them a jerk. They're like, I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm not an asshole. Most of like the defenses of Corbyn were obviously just that, where it's like, you know, Jeremy Corbyn has been, you know, a campaigner for anti-racism. And and, and I do believe when he says it, when he's like, I've campaigned against anti-Semitism my whole life. And I, I believe that. Yeah. But that doesn't mean he can't also be anti-Semitic. Right. Like, having good qualities doesn't make you, you know, inherently ideologically pure person. He could love his kids, he could love his dog, he could still be an anti-Semite. I think the way that uh, the Labour Party and Corbyn first responded to this was to ignore it, which is definitely awful. I remember when that was happening, that that was really saddening to me, which was that their initial, I think that was their tactic, was to literally just deny and ignore everything. That's still their tactic. Yeah, and well, to a degree, although now it's just like he'll just say sorry, but then just say something that is bad again, and then say sorry (laughs) again, and then say so bad, and then say sorry. (laughs) But so this came to a head when, you know, Labour was asked to do an inquiry. Corbyn picked Shami Chakrabarti, a Labour MP, to do the report. And and at the time, Shami Chakrabarti was really popular with the Jewish community, actually. So she was purposefully picked for that reason. However, once the actual report came out, which took a while, you can see from a tactical point of view why they did that. Because whilst people were waiting for the inquiry, people were a bit like, oh, it's fine. They've dealt with it. They're dealing with it. Now it's all good. And then the report comes out. So, you know, they asked members of the Jewish community and Jewish people in the Labour Party to send to submit, you know, their views on what things were like. But then in the actual report, it's largely just kind of philosophical, just ruminations about what Shami Chakrabarti sees herself. And there's very, very, very little evidence. And even more than that, there's almost no mention to the submissions that were taken. And all of the people that were asked to be part of this report later, you know, said that they felt they, they'd been completely ignored and purposefully ignored, where almost all of the things they'd said and all of the things they brought up were just being completely ignored. And there's even suggestions in the report that, you know, anti-Semitism is important to deal with, but we can't ignore anti-racism as well. And it's like, but you're doing a report about anti-Semitism. Yeah. <laughs> you're not doing a report about other types of racism. You see what I mean? So it's like, it seemed like it was kind of being like, all right, well, fuck off. It just seemed like really (laughs) dismissive. From an American perspective, it reminds me of the Mueller report where we were waiting and waiting for Mueller to come out with whether or not, you know, Trump was guilty of uh, collaborating with Russia if it was a quid pro quo. And the whole like 400 page report came out and it ended in a shrug. He was just Mm. like, you decide. It was a choose your own adventure report, um, Mm. which is not the role of these reports. So like the report, it did end up having, you know, there were some, you know, good things in it. They expelled a lot of people, but they kind of missed the biggest thing because one of the biggest things they avoided talking about in the report was um uh, the discussion of the criticism of Israel and the criticism of Jewish people as a whole. Not that, you know, criticism of Israel is a bad thing because um 
what ended up happening is that the IHRA, IHRA, International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, their definition of anti-Semitism. So Labour were asked to obviously take that definition along with the Conservative Party at the time, because neither had that. <laughs> Wait, can I just butt in for a second? Wait, what? Sorry, yeah, 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 what, sure. what was the um, what was her name again? The woman who did the the report? Shami Chakrabarti. She also got like a, a promotion right afterwards, right? So she, you know, after all this happened, she came away with a lordship. She's now in the House of Lords, which is one of the highest honours you can receive as an MP. And that's the thing is that so many people in the Jewish community in the UK just felt betrayed, especially the people that actually really, you know, within the Labour Party looked up to her. Because, yeah. you know, apart from that, Shami Chakrabarti has She's been, been you know, a solid. great MP. Yeah, It hurt the Jewish community a lot. So then, obviously, Labour adopts the I. H R I H R A. <laughs> yeah, definition of anti-Semitism. But they actually change the definition as they adopt it. So instead of actually taking the full definition, they purposefully omit any parts to do with Israel. And in response to this, over 60 British rabbis, including Harvey Belosovsky, can't say that. I'm not going to say their names. Sorry, I just can't <laughs> do it. <laughs> Over 60 British rabbis said that Labour had chosen to ignore the Jewish community, that it was not the Labour Party's place to rewrite a definition of anti-Semitism, and that the full definition had been accepted by you know the government and the Crown Prosecution Service. So, like internationally and government-wise, it had already been accepted. Yet, you know, the Labour Party chose to change that, which is really strange to and me. Their their issue with the definition was they were scared of, and they still are, they're scared of what they would say censoring criticism of Israel. Mm. But to me, like, then why don't they just work with Jews and compromise and find a place where the line is between criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism? Yeah, but even if they wanted to change that definition or, you know, fight, because like, I remember I was reading something where the people part of that body, you are you are allowed to change things. It's not like a strict thing. But to do it without consulting Jewish people, even like any Jewish bodies that actually develop those definitions and stuff, I think is, you know, purposefully ignorant of Jewish people as a whole. Yeah, like you wouldn't define homophobia without discussing yeah. it with gay people. <laughs> yeah, I completely get why they're doing it, because they're, they're scared that they're, they're going to make us stop criticizing Israel, blah, 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 blah. After all this happened and Corbyn, he was a very tainted man. This, you know, had a knock-on effect in the rest of the left. And I think it did become a bit of a, are you on Corbyn's side or are you not? For me at this time, you know, I kind of had a little crisis because, you know, I, if he was still leader, I still would have voted for him. Because, like, politically, I would say I'm the same. Like, politically, I agree with a lot of the things he does. But I think that's the thing is what happened then is that a lot of people in the left saw it as anything that was being said about Corbyn or more widely just what was going on the Labour Party was it had to be a fabrication because you know there's obviously this idea that they're, they're trying to stop socialism winning which obviously is a trend throughout history like I don't doubt that more right-wing newspapers or whatever in the UK were more negative against Jeremy Corbyn they definitely were but it had absolutely nothing to do with Jewish people. It's just to do with the fact that he's a socialist politician. He's never going to be popular in the press. Same with Bernie Sanders or anyone like that. There's definitely a trend of using uh, Jews and the accusation of anti-Semitism to, uh, you know, hurt your political opposition. 
Um, and, and it's happening in the U.S. too. People who have, you know, very little interest in Jewish self-determination and, you know, Jewish rights uh, will just accuse their political opponents of anti-Semitism when, you know, they're probably guilty of anti-Semitism themselves. But that's the thing. So obviously it got to the point where Corbyn was expelled from the party. And this is because the EHRC report in 2020 was released. So the Equality and Human Rights Commission was released in 2020. And this basically, you know, laid out, you know, exactly how bad things really had gotten in the Labour Party and specifically, you know, Corbyn or at the very least Corbyn's team's involvement in that. And in response to that, Corbyn basically just said it was being blown out of proportion. And it was, you know, being sensationalized and, you know, it's just the media, blah, blah, blah. Right. Even if you are anti-Semitic and you're trying not to be, why would you say that? It's literally like, I can't think of anything worse that you could say in response to something like that. I don't understand why someone would continue to respond like that. It seems really arrogant. It's, it's again, it's because they don't, they aren't actually looking at it as Jews saying, hi, can you please examine your mm. behavior? They're seeing it as people they're they're saying mean things to me they're calling me mean names like anti-semitic and it's like <laughs> they they just they just take it so personally it's very weird it's like very childlike I want to use this as an opportunity to complain about uh, leftist politics these days. (laughs) Um, And this is from the perspective of the left. You know, I grew up in a a really liberal area. Almost everybody I know comes from that perspective. Uh, And it's become really insular, really uh, separate from any other political views, especially in the time of Trump. And there's this kind of like unsettling orthodoxy on the left right now where there are these series of litmus tests that uh, are are organized uh, with the intention to fail Jews, I think uh, purposefully or uh, accidentally, but these spaces that I think uh, a lot of leftist Jews would really like to participate in, the anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist, anti-racist spaces, uh, all kind of come as a package deal on the left right now. And a part of that deal is and serious distancing from Israel. uh, And if that's a part of your Jewish identity at all, a distancing from that as well. And so there seems to be this pattern where politics are kind of replacing religion in our lives as uh, how we create communities, how we identify um, and, and who's in the in and who's in the out group. And just to be clear, this isn't my idea. If you want to read more about it, look into people like Sam Harris and Jonathan Haidt. But also, you know, the U.S. is going through uh, a bit of a racial justice reckoning at the moment, probably long overdue. But in the name of uh, these anti-racist ideologies, which, of course, fullheartedly support, but there are these uh, racial hierarchies that don't fit Jews because, you know, Jews are not only a religious group, they're also an ethnicity. And while there is some willingness right now to view race as a social construct, that kind of leeway doesn't seem to extend to Jews at the moment. And the exclusion has gotten 
uh, pretty obvious, you know. I'm thinking of uh, Linda Sorsor and the BLM marches and um, uh, women's marches where, you know, it was for everyone except cops and Zionists. And depending on the stats you want to use, 90 to 97% of Jewish people identify with the label Zionist. And I'm not sure you're including Jews if you're including between 3 and 10% of them. She's also been caught accidentally quoting David Duke from the KKK, which is a pretty big mistake. That's pretty fucking embarrassing to accidentally quote David Duke. So I, it's, it's leaving a lot of Jews out at the moment. And there's this long history of uh, assimilated Jews kind of ass- assisting this effort to exclude Jews. Uh, Jewish Voices for Peace and If Not Now are kind of the contemporary equivalent. But just to go back to the, to the history earlier in this episode, after the Holocaust and the ethnic cleansings in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, the American Jewish Committee, a group of assimilated Jews, lobbied against survivors immigrating to the British Mandate of Palestine. So uh, there's a long history of assimilated Jews siding with the people, I guess, trying to oppress Jews. I think it's also important to like, just say the Jewish community ever since, you know, ever since we've been given the option of assimilation, it's always been split between Jewish groups that do not want to assimilate and would rather just, you know, very insular stay within Jewish communities because they they frankly do not trust non-Jewish people and Jewish groups who do assimilate into a, into societies. And basically, you can see that division in even religious sects in Judaism right now. With You can see the Reform Judaism is the more assimilated version, and Orthodox Judaism is more of a, an insular, exclusionary version. And like I count myself as a very assimilated Jew. I would say you're you're pretty assimilated as well. Yeah, very much so. Uh, we're pretty American, um, <laughs> but I think that um, there definitely is a history of Jews being tokenized. I don't really blame these Jewish groups that have these opinions that go against the majority of the Jewish population because, again, I think that in itself is very Jewish. I, I think. Um, <laughs> I think it's a very Jewish thing to like go against the grain and just say, I believe this, even though nobody else else does. I think the issue happens more when non-Jews come in, pick up these Jews that have these more fringe opinions, and then just claim that these are the real Jews, everybody else are, are fake, or these are the good Jews, everybody else is bad. So, I mean, we were talking with our friend um, Khaled about this, who has a great podcast, Unified for Palestine. Mm. We were talking with him about this, how he can have Jews on his podcast who have more fringe opinions, groups like like Jewish Voice for Peace, or if not now, and stuff like that. Those are good examples of that, but without tokenizing them. And I told him, basically, just make it very clear that they don't in any way represent all Jewish people, just like Zoe and I don't represent all Jewish people. We represent ourselves, and we represent the information we've we've ingested and we represent our own experiences. And I think that it just becomes a huge fucking issue when non-Jews try to represent all Jews with some Jews. Yeah, it, it's important to note that these organizations do pander to anti-Semites and regularly post misinformation. So uh, I'm sure we're all guilty of that to some extent. But when there is that kind of tokenization prize at the end, I think 
uh, you do have to watch these organizations pretty pretty closely because there's a big incentive to say, look, here, here are the good ones. Definitely. Like, uh, I think it was Jewish Voice for Peace had that panel defining what yeah. anti-Semitism was where, Oof. like, I think it was like half of the people on the panel have been fired from their jobs for because of anti-Semitic behavior. Yeah. It's just like, that's just clearly not okay. Even, even if, cause I'm sure that their argument was, well, we don't think they were anti-Semitic. It's like, okay, well, even then, why are you choosing specifically these people to define yeah. anti-Semitism? I mean, yeah, like nuance of opinion, obviously, you know, free speech, and mm -hmm. especially in a place like America, you know, that's, that's the foundation of it. But who you choose, who you're platforming, all that kind of stuff, it's a political choice, no matter what people say. What they choose is basically what they're condoning, in a sense. So if they really wanted to seem like they weren't doing that, they would have been very cognizant of that and thought, hmm, wait one second, we're basically just picking the people that agree with us. And they're not Jewish. It's like J yeah. JVP mm. is like, and they claim they're a Jewish organization that speaks for anti-Zionist Jews, which is totally fine. Mm. But why why are they getting non-Jews to speak for Jews on what anti-Semitic behavior is hosted by a supposedly Jewish organization? Like it just that really upset me. So that yeah, I I I think that's kind of what, or at least I hope that's kind of related to what you were saying, Zoe, where it's like they did that so they can kind of get points from left-wing groups because that's what the majority of left-wing groups want, is they want to be told, no, 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 there's no anti-Semitism problem. It's easier exactly. to believe. That. It's almost like if they find someone that you know is saying exactly what they're saying, they will obviously put them on the pedestal and be like, "Oh, wait, look! Even they're saying it, and they're Jewish. <laughs> look, even they're saying that they hate Jews, and they are Jewish." And it's like people are allowed to think whatever they want, no matter what their identity is. Obviously, because I remember that was a big thing with Trump, where it was like, "Wait one second, there's black Trump supporters," and then you know that's like a similar thing because then equally. Well, look at that. There's a black person that supports Trump. See? How can Trump be racist? So it's like, you know, identity can be completely um, separate from, you know, like ideology and politics. People are just people at the end of the day. People are going to think what they want to think. The danger is when people will use other people that share those opinions as like proof of something. See, all the others are wrong. These ones are right these ones. Yeah, like the, the left has a pattern right now. And, and I think this is also going on in Jewish communities where we label the JVPs and the if not nows of the world as uh, safe hating Jews. Uh, and the and self hating. The, the, yeah. And the people of color who voted for Trump as somehow race traitors. And it's just mm. this absolutely disgusting concept uh, that the idea that your identity should somehow correlate to your political opinions and if you fail to do that you're you're failing your community what's the quote from biden oh yeah you're not black if you don't vote for me <laughs> did he say that oh fucking hell if you don't vote for me you're not black <laughs> it was really yeah oh that's like, awful oh, jesus stop. christ biden <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, so, so that that brings me really nicely into the California ethnic studies, which uh, created this system where everybody kind of gets to uh, lobby for their ethnic group, which is going to go poorly. This is a program for high schools in California. Yes, thank you. And so I, I just want to go over how, how Jews fit into that. 
uh, curriculum really quickly because there's some there's some really gro- gross stuff in there, like the idea that Jews changed their position on the racial hierarchy. Um, a few things there. A, what the fuck is a racial hierarchy? Let's not bring that one back. And two, the idea that Jews gained racial privilege, uh, which which goes back to that really old uh, Soviet sneaky cosmopolitan Jew that can kind of blend in, run our society into the ground. I do think it, it is important to talk about um, there. Uh, there are a lot of Jews, like like I would say, me and you are included in this. That passes white. <laughs> that a lot of people wouldn't know are Jewish just by looking at us, unless they really actually know what Jews look like, which most people don't. They only know the stereotypes. But I, I think that there is some privilege of not walking around with different color skin, absolutely black skin. Yeah. And stuff like walking around in America, that's a, that's an immediate identifier. And the fact that you and I are able to walk around and not worry about being profiled by police or something based off the color of our skin, like that is that is that is a, a privilege. But that's not a privilege because we're Jewish. It's white privilege being given to people yeah. who can pass as white. I was going to say the same thing because I identify with that as well. Because right. I'm half English and then, you know, like partly Caribbean as well. But I can't identify with the discrimination people face because I pass as white. So then I don't face discrimination. Simple as that. Because identity is a multifaceted thing. You're not ever characterized by one thing. It's like, but that doesn't mean that it's not important to think about that. Mm-hmm. Of course. I think it's incredibly important to think about that. But it's important to look at literally every single facet of how identity is both seen from an outside perspective, but also how people feel that identity within themselves and how it expresses it. Isaac, I'm, I'm kind of curious because we've never really talked, or maybe we have, maybe I've just Let's forgotten. Talk about I don't know. Let me talk about your penis. Um, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> Finally, no. something that's interesting. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, no, because I think oh, I think us three are, you know, I don't think we've been stopped by the police. I don't think we've been. But like Isaac and I have said before that we feel kind of like spies in a way, because mm. I'm I'm not sure. I assume you kind of feel similarly. I, I don't yeah, really, yeah. even though I may pass as just another white dude, I do not feel that way. I don't feel comfortable in the same way. I, I don't know if you've experienced what I've experienced often before, which is like, because obviously people see me as just like a white English guy. I've been in so many situations where I'm just, you know, hanging out with some people and then all of a sudden, you know, racism. And Totally. If they knew of my entire, you know, like ethnic makeup and stuff, they almost definitely wouldn't have said those things. Yeah, so I always feel kind of uncomfortable because I know that in so many situations, if people knew about certain things, like if they knew who my dad was or who my granddad was or anything like that, they'd be, they would immediately see me differently and treat me differently and maybe say different things and act differently around me, which is like, it's not a comfortable feeling. And I'm sure you feel the same. Yeah. Again, it's a part of your identity. And like, it's yeah. something that only someone else who shares that part of your identity can really understand. Like I, I a good way of talking about this is like in dating, right? Mm. If I go on a date with a Jewish person, I don't have to explain. Also, like I don't have to fear explaining a bunch of things about myself <laughs> yeah. that I would have to explain. And and it's it, again, it's totally okay to explain those things to people, but mm. that it it's it's an extra effort to make sure that 
they're okay with your identity. Um, when you're dating someone who, if you're on a date with someone who is not from the same background as you, uh, and that background is important to you, you have to kind of make that clear. And a lot of the times that's a turnoff. And, mm. and it's scary to bring that up sometimes, especially when they don't know that you're not just another white person. Yeah, like my, my culture is influenced by by European culture. That's where the Ashkenazi diaspora was. But when it comes down to it, it's not European people. Most of our traditions, uh, our culture, our religious practices, they all stem from the Middle East. So I don't know if you want to use the term functional white privilege or white passing, but whatever it is, it's this very surface level avoidance of kind of the colorism that affects yeah. anybody who exists in in the, you know, distinctly people of color. And I think it highlights obviously how, you know, what is whiteness? What is it? Right. And why is it so important that Jews fit into that category? Mm. If you can acknowledge that your life isn't harder when you don't have to cross the street because somebody is afraid of you or get followed in a store. But, you know, people know I'm Jewish. And if somebody starts rounding us all up again, yeah. it's it's not going to take very long. Yeah. <laughs> Um, a little bit of a trigger warning here on sexual assault, uh, but the reason Ashkenazi Jews are so white is because of rape, and I don't think we talk about that enough. We were a very vulnerable population in Europe. You know, I, I don't really know where my family was at before they came to the U.S. They don't talk about it. They got to the U.S., they, uh, and they started looking towards the future. My um my great great grandmother I think uh my mom knew her she was from Ukraine I believe and she had this thick thick accent and she could barely speak English and people would always ask her like oh uh, where are you from and she'd be like yes I am American and they would be like <laughs> they'd be like no but like where are you from and she was like oh I am American yes and she just she's American she would never say where she was from <laughs> right so I think we need like room for these complex identities yeah. uh, and every and if everything needs to be distilled down to its proximity to whiteness we're gonna get a really whitewashed version of people's history um and i don't think that's useful in these type of discussions well, i mean yeah. um ethnicities exist ethnicities biologically that exists culturally that exists Races are a social construct that were created by racists <laughs> to group people into groups that do not make sense. What even is a white person? There are so many different cultures that are underneath the umbrella of white, just like how like when we were doing our Africa, our episode on Africa, how the Europeans came in there and just they were like, well, they're all black. They're all this. Africa is a massive fucking continent with tons of different cultures and ethnicities. And, and the fact that like just grouping everybody together just based off of a color is just fucking dumb. So it doesn't make sense. And, and it seems almost, it, no, not even almost, it seems like an outdated way of looking at things unless you're looking at an endpoint where it's like, well, people who pass for white, people who are white have these privileges. They, are, they don't get stopped by the police. They don't get profiled like this on the street and stuff. I understand it in that context. And it's tempting to use one metric to understand all ethnic and racial categories. Like when it comes to the African American diaspora and black pride, it makes a, a lot of sense to have a uh, black pride around that uh, diaspora identity because of the slave trade. A lot of people do not know where they're from. 
um, when it comes to Jews. We have Sephardic, we have Ashkenazi, and we have uh, pride as a part of where we were in our diaspora. But again, you can't apply the same metric to two different peoples. It, it doesn't work. We need to find a way to have these nuanced conversations without being or feeling attacked, I guess. Like, you really need to respect people's individual identities uh, and the way they understand their ethnicity uh, and their culture and their people. Yeah, it all should be analyzed from, you know, a really nuanced perspective. And I think, you know, in academia, there are people that do that. So it's not like that doesn't happen. It does happen. There is a nuanced way of looking at things anyway. But I do think, I think both on the right and the left, there's a temptation to um, simplify things in order to be able to much more easily categorize things, which can then be, you know, that can be weaponized because then, you know, you just have these separate identities that you can choose which are good or bad. And you can choose which ones are oppressed and which ones are not. And the same thing that applies to like the good Jew, bad Jew dynamic, I think also applies to the good lefty, bad lefty dynamic. Like after Trump in the US, I think people are really suspicious of each other and their secreted uh, internal bigots. And so I think we say a lot of things just to symbolic phrases to show that we're, we're a part of the good side. We believe in white privilege, of course, we're anti-racist, of course, and all these things that you need to keep stating before you're allowed to talk about your own identity, um, because I think people are just really suspicious of each other right now. I think in general, there's a real rise of um, conspiracy theories in every single area of politics, regardless of left or right conspiracy theories which historically have always eventually put the Jews at the top of that. I think you'll notice that, you know, I mean, QAnon is being taken in by a lot of left-wing people. I think people don't quite realize that. People see it as like a Trump thing. It's not. It's going to live out Trump completely. I think it's kind of starting to become a new kind of way of looking at politics, which is basically just conspiracy theories. And I think historically that tends to be the things that leads to the most, well, bloodshed, sadly, because you have to have conspiracy theories to justify evil acts. In Jewish history, you see this theme of seeds being planted mm. with either conspiracy theories or biases or anti-Semitic statements being made. And those seeds are just there. But as soon as those seeds are planted, even if there is a hundred years of relatively low anti-Semitism, you can bet your ass like those seeds are going to grow eventually. Mm. Um, it doesn't matter how long ago those ideas were planted into the public thought or into the public record or something, you you can be assured that every conspiracy theory that mentions Jews will be brought up again at some point. And it stems from this need to categorize each other um, into in good and bad in my team and the other team. The critical race theory and like the ethnic studies course and stuff really cements like a lot of this stuff. Right. It just like the idea of Jews being able to gain racial privilege feels like an enormously dangerous idea to me and one that we should not risk teaching to 14 year olds or anybody T to validate that is fucked up. Like one of my like political heroes, Noam Chomsky, recently came out and on an interview in support of the Khazar theory. That's always a good one. So Noam Chomsky is Jewish. 
like he said something really interesting. I think this highlights one of the big differences between you know what basically tends to define what people on the left call the good Jews. It's like Noam Chomsky said something where he was like, "Yeah, well, I'm a Jew, but Jews don't exist, so really, I'm not." A Jew. <laughs> Surprise! He basically said like, "Well, I choose to be a Jew, but Jews aren't really real." <laughs> hey Eli, are you real? <laughs> Yeah, but I'm not really Jewish. I'm just I'm just choosing to be. Zoe and I have been on Clubhouse uh, recently, which Isaac doesn't have an iPhone, so he can't he can't get on yet. <laughs> but but uh, there there have been I've been in like a lot of rooms now, and the Khazar theory is probably the one I see that pops up the most. It's the idea that Jews don't come from the Middle East, specifically Ashkenazi Jews do not come from the Middle East. They come from Khazaria, from like a mass conversion from a Christian nation to a Jewish nation, which didn't happen. And there's like no there's evidence against this theory. So much evidence overwhelming amounts of yeah there's there's literally like there's no arguing this theory it doesn't it's not true it's there like it's genetically been disproven actually it's a great example of uh criticism of israel crossing into anti-semitic territory people like to use that as an argument for why jews have no right to be in the levant because they say well it's not even your native homeland because you're from kazaria and it's like, what the fuck? And I think also acknowledging that Jews are indigenous and native to the land of Israel does not mean denying Palestinian ingenuity. I think the, the idea that they're against each other somehow has been planted by outside forces that are trying to divide Palestinians and Jews. I think it's the Jews. I think it's the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> One more time. (laughs) (laughs) No, because do you remember, like, that's actually one of the things that Noam Chomsky said, and this is the thing that often confuses me. It's like, well, DNA doesn't matter, obviously. Here's the thing, though. Jewish people are kind of like a unique people in a sense in that you know most of history they haven't had an actual place to call home so many other countries in the world so say you're like english you could literally say the same thing to basically every country well you're not really allowed to be in england because like most of your dna is from scandinavia most of your dna is from here most of your dna is from there blah blah the thing is is that if jews are going to be anywhere they're going to be where they originally were that kind of makes sense right you could literally say that about any people that exist ever because that's basically how dna works obviously jews have been isolated for so long throughout their entire history that non-jews were not allowed to marry or have kids with non-jews so pretty much i mean there were like mass rape events but overall jews really had to stay with other jews um so their dna didn't mix too much with um europeans like ashkenazis overwhelmingly the ashkenazi dna is studied extensively because it's like it's it's homogenous the reason that dna is brought up so often by jewish people is not because jews are trying to be you know eugenics or anything it's not like that it's genuinely because like that is one of the very few things that jews still have left it's a very obvious marker of jewishness in any diaspora group Jews were forced to assimilate through violence. Uh, They were forced to assimilate to whatever culture they were in at the time. So Ashkenazi Jews, specifically talking about them, Ashkenazi Jews, their culture had to change drastically. Now, obviously, they kept a lot of their culture traditions and stuff from Judea and, and Israel, but the foods they ate, 
the music they listened to, like so many things changed. They lost a, a large amount of their original culture and also through the awful, <laughs> awful amount of genocides that the Jews have been through. It's an easy way to find who you're related to and to find the family that you're separated from. That's why my family is on 23andMe. We've, I've connected with a lot of family members through genetic testing that I never would have ever seen or met my entire life. Yeah, that's one of my issues with what Noam Chomsky said. If he's like, well, you know, DNA doesn't matter. But what he's really saying is it doesn't matter to him, which is fine. You know, mm -hmm. you can be, you know, you can have an ethnic makeup and not care about it. But the reality is, is that there is a direct correlation, unsurprisingly, between people with Jewish DNA and people that would call themselves Jewish and are culturally Jewish. Mm -hmm. To me, then, saying that DNA doesn't matter is basically saying, you're basically by extension saying Jewish people don't matter, right? It does matter. No, it, it's a it's a really, really complicated issue and it's hard to talk about it without sounding like a Nazi. Right? <laughs> <laughs> My uh, DNA won't come back Scottish or French or whatever the hell. It comes back. 100% Ashkenazi Jew. And so that's that's a very distinct marker. I'm not sure I want that publicly on a podcast. We might have to cut <laughs> that one out. Nobody's got to know what my DNA says. I mean, if it helps, like, I deny that I am half English. <laughs> <laughs> I reject it. It's a little embarrassing. It is. It really is. I, I also understand the argument against the DNA thing, too, because, like, genetically, I am not fully Jewish. Genetically, I am half Jewish. And, and, and I worry about that, right? Like, I, I that makes me feel insecure about my Jewishness. Am I fully Jewish if I'm not genetically fully Jewish? Would I be accepted by like Orthodox communities as Jewish? Would my kids be Jewish if I had children with a, a non-Jew? Hey, you, I want to have a baby. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, I, I understand the, the arguments against the DNA stuff. And of course, DNA is not the overall deciding thing of who is Jewish and who is not. It's just one of the ways to track a population. I have a quote I'd like to end on. I thought it was really, really, really well written. It's by the Instagram account sapphic.in, S-A-P-P-H-I-C dot I-N. So it starts off, the line most often quoted from Frank's diary, in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart, is often called inspiring, by which we mean that it flatters us. It makes us feel forgiven for these lapses of our civilization that allow for piles of murdered girls. And if those were came from a murdered girl, well, then we must be absolved, because they must be true. That gift of grace and absolution from a murdered Jew, exactly the gift, it is worth noting, at the heart of Christianity, is what millions of people are so eager to find in Frank's hiding place, in her writings, in her legacy. It is far more gratifying to believe that an innocent dead girl has offered us grace than to recognize the obvious. Frank wrote about people being truly good at heart three weeks before she met people who weren't. Oof.
I just thought that was so well written. I was just gonna say, uh, anti-Semitic crimes are at a all-time high worldwide. Not all time. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Good catch. Um, they're really high, um, and that's that's a reason we we need to be having these conversations now. Um, it's because we can't give a pass to the left because you know that's just where we fall. It's like what I said at the start. I think. The quote, anti-Semitism is the socialism of the fools. I think if you really are, you know, truly like left-wing or truly socialist or whatever you think of yourself, you're not anti-Semitic. There's a quote from Jean-Paul Sartre, which is, if the Jew did not exist, the anti-Semite would invent him. (laughs) It's a character that's been invented. And, you know, conveniently, they place Jews in that character. This is to this is to Jeremy Corbyn. This is to Noam Chomsky. This is to AOC. This is all to all those people. Don't be tempted by that kind of way of thinking of things. It's a rabbit hole that once you go down, you won't come out of it. I think that's the thing is because they see it as this is what it actually is. Though what we've figured out is like the truth. I mean, Marx figured it out, so we've got it right, right? What they're doing is they're completely missing the reality of the situation because you know there are you know there are powerful people that do bad things in the world. That's a real thing. That's not a conspiracy. But to turn that into a conspiracy and to place a group of people that are real—that's when it goes wrong. And that's it. Completely then undermines the movement because all of the actual people doing the bad things carry on doing the bad things, so they benefit. People like Trump benefit, you know, your Jeff Bezos is, although, you know, they benefit from that because they're like, oh, brilliant. Yeah, go attack the Jews and we'll carry on doing the exact same shit we've done for the last fucking thousand years. That's why I get so sad with all of this. Not only is it just bad because it's, you know, a whole group of people have been abused, but it's also all of the good things about, you know, socialism and stuff are being undermined at the same time. Yeah, we, again, we're calling this stuff out because we respect these people and we want them to be better. And we can get there. Yeah, yeah, I totally think we can. Anti-Semitism isn't cool, kids. Anti-Semitism? Nah. Not my favorite thing. All right, so I, I hope that didn't <laughs> depress you too much. Um, I think that's our catchphrase. It is. We say it all the fucking time, though. But I, I, I know we keep saying we're going to do a happy episode, but there's a lot of stuff to cover, you know what? And that's not our fault. And then the world became amazing. Yeah. It was peace on earth. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you for being oh, here. Thank you for being part of this. To our listeners, thank you for listening. Um, we'll, you know, we haven't done it yet, but we are going to boof up our Instagram a bit and put our sources up there. And Isaac, you have the Instagram. Yes, so you can follow us at How Did We FCK This Up, and then it's How Did We Fuck This Up at Gmail.com if you want to send us any angry emails. Let us know how you disagree. As with you us. should. We are no, by no means are we experts. We're just a couple people sitting around talking. So please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Zoe is the expert. Zoe, is, <laughs> Zoe represents all Jews everywhere. Um, That's every, me. Everything she has said. If Jews are a monolith and I represent them, call me the Lorax. She is infallible. Zoe, what's your favorite food? Uh, matzo ball soup. That is now the, the national food of Israel. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't it already? 
I feel like, isn't matzo ball soup just Ashkenazi? It is very Ashkenazi. <laughs> Nobody else puts uh, soggy croutons and chicken soup and <laughs> comfort food except for Ashkenazi it's Jews. It's tasty. I like it. It's though. so tasty. Anyway, uh, we love you. We love you. We love you. Love you.